you guys would turn there with me. We're going to be looking at the Last Supper today. And uh, we'll pray and then we'll <coughs> get started. Uh, so, Father, um, <coughs> I just pray that you would uh, be present with us. Lord, I know that you will be. And um, to, uh, to let us uh, see what you have for us. Help us to look into your word and, and hear from you. Lord, we know that you have a purpose and a plan and something to say to us today. And uh, please help us hear that. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So John chapter 13. Like I said, this is the, the account of the Last Supper that we're going to be looking at. Oh, and Bibles. I even had it on my to-do list, and I missed it. Thank you, Andy. Anybody need a Bible? Yep, there's one over there. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, so Last Supper. Um, <clears throat> pretty heavy chapter, I think. Pretty solemn chapter, because... Right after this chapter, or on the timeline sort of of this last week of Jesus' life, is his uh, betrayal and his arrest and uh, scourgings and crucifixion. So it's a pretty significant chapter, I think, given what's coming next, uh, being just, just hours before that happens. As we approach it, because the disciples have no idea what's coming, Jesus is fully aware of what's coming. Um, and this is, of course, would obviously be part of the last week of his life, um, beginning with the triumphal entry on Sunday. And this is Thursday night of this particular week. Uh, I learned a lot studying, getting ready for this, some things I, I sort of knew but hadn't really considered a whole lot about. Um, the amount of information in the Gospels that points directly to this one particular week. Uh, if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all four of those Gospels, but one-third of the content of the four Gospels actually is dedicated to this one week. I didn't realize that. Um, and almost half of the book of John is. And uh, if you Google uh, like chron chronological events of last week of Jesus, I couldn't believe the amount of um, things that actually happened, like the separate events. I almost printed them off for the questions, but it was like four pages long. It was pretty, pretty impressive the amount of stuff that goes on here. So clearly the Holy Spirit is directing us as we sit and read the Gospels to spend a lot of time considering the things that happened in this last week. Uh, a few highlights, though, as I mentioned, the, the week begins with the triumphal entry. Uh, we also call that Palm Sunday, which is pretty significant in and of itself because that was the fulfillment of a centuries-old prophecy that Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which he did on Sunday. Um, you have, uh, for the second time in his ministry, he goes into the temple, runs out the money changers, flips over the tables. Uh, he, uh, there's a bunch of prophecies regarding end times that he offers. He predicts the destruction of the temple, which would happen in 70 AD. A bunch of confrontations with the Pharisees. Uh, his head is anointed with oil. Uh, and you can't miss the fact that this being Passover week, Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. So the Passover lamb himself rides into Jerusalem and attends the Passover feast. This is what we're going to be looking at here. Uh, so the Passover feast, if I understand correctly, begins at or after sundown. And uh, just to kind of set the table a little bit, 
here. And, uh, these guys have been uh, in Jerusalem all week. It's been an extremely busy week, given all the stuff that happened. Uh, Peter and uh, John have spent the day at the direction of Jesus upstairs preparing the Passover. So they've been upstairs all day working away. And as we come up the stairs, um, they're greeted by probably the smell of food. They've been, they've been cooking all day. There's lamps that are lit. There's a table set there because, uh, as Jesus had said, they're going to find an upper room somewhere, which means it was the home of a wealthy person. And it was fully furnished. And if it's a formal feast, the custom was that they would sit with a, a three-sided table uh, called the triclinium. And uh, customarily, you would sit on the outside of the table, and the tables are really low, maybe a foot high, depending on the particular setting. But they would sit on, on the outside of that, and they would sit on a low couch or a cushion, and you would recline at the table and reach in with your right hand and eat with that table. And <clears throat> they would have assigned seating, so to speak, kind of like we do maybe at a wedding reception. First thing you do usually is go in and try to find your spot, and, and they would do that too. Um, the uh, order would be from one end in a kind of a descending order around the table of importance is where they would sit. The host would be the first one in from the end. And we know from our text here that uh, John, the author of our gospel we're going to be looking at in a second, uh, was on the right hand of Jesus, and then he had Jesus. And it seems pretty evident that Judas was just to the left of Jesus. They're able to talk in some hushed tones. They look at each other. Uh, they share the piece of bread. We'll get to that, of course. So Judas is likely right here. Down the line, they would go. The only other name we have mentioned is Peter. And it doesn't say where Peter sat, so it doesn't really matter. But most people suspect that Peter was kind of on the other end, maybe at the lowest seat, which seems exactly where Peter should be. Um, so that's kind of the scene. It's been a busy week. A very uh, important week in the scriptures. They're upstairs, there's lamps burning, there's food there, they've got their places, they're all sitting down. And we pick up the story in verse 1, which reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If, you do, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are, all, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, 
you also wash, ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need to eat, excuse me, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Right, so there's, there's our text. I'll just uh, work down, worked our way down through it. So, uh, and very back to verse 1. So, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, so, Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. He knows what's going on behind the scenes. He knows that Satan's lurking. He knows that uh, Judas is plotting and planning. And he knows what's going to come next. Um, interesting thing about the week, I think, as you read through the different accounts, um, the, whole, the whole week has this sense of, or a feeling that God's driving this thing. There's this inevitable conclusion. The, the timeline's just moving right along. And we know that that's the case, it's God's plan, but there's a feeling that comes with it as you read, you know, Jesus rides in on the donkey. He rises from the table. Uh, chapter 18, when he's in the garden praying, I'm going to read this verse to you. Uh, so he's in the, in the garden, and Judas has got the, the mob, and they're coming to arrest him. It says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Um, so Jesus knows everything, and he knows what he's about to get into. He knows what's coming his way. He knows the, the whipping and the crucifixion and the mocking and everything that's coming. And he, he's, he himself being God, and they're, they're just driving this thing to its inevitable conclusion to f- fulfill the plan that God has here. And also, I think that's probably one of the most manly things anybody's ever done. Jesus rises and goes forward. He walks right into what's coming for him. So he knows the hour has come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. And that certainly includes his disciples, those that were in that room. That would include the followers that um, he uh, that had amassed and were, were following him around that weren't necessarily in that room. I think that definitely includes us, uh, anybody that 
believes in him and everybody who's trusted in him is included in that, that he loved his own who are in the world. And then he loved them to the end. Uh, the word end there doesn't mean uh, termination or, or something no longer existing. The, the, the word is uh, better defined as something reaching its conclusion or its completion or a goal being reached. Some translations actually have it uh, to the fullest extent or to the uttermost, which certainly uh, applies to the timeline itself because Jesus' life is, is winding down here. His, his ministry is ending at the, the cross, we'll say, and the resurrection, of course, but I think it goes beyond just the timeline. Um, the totality of his redemptive plan, um, he's, he's given all of himself. He's done, he's done and fulfilled all the things that God has called him to do. Um, he's given all of himself. He's sacrificing everything that he has. He's loving his own who are in the world, and he loves them to the end. Um, and incidentally, for whatever it's worth, that's, that's how we ended up in this chapter. I was praying about where to go, and those words just came to mind. He loved them to the end, and I had no idea where they were, so I Googled them. I had no idea where it was, and I found it was here and spent some time here. That's how we ended up here. So there may be more to that sentence there than I realized, but... Um, that's how we ended up here. Ah, so chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3. So Job was Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and it was going to God. I had recently uh, heard somebody teaching on this and uh, I liked it, so I'm going to use it that um, God has given all things into his hands and the question being, what does he do with those hands? So he, he reaches down and he picks up a towel and he washes dirty feet with them. The idea that, that that's God. And a few hours from now, those hands are going to be nailed to a cross. But here, in an act of humility and service, he chooses to pick up a towel with those hands. Uh, let's see, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with a towel with which he was girded. Uh, the occasion of the foot washing seems to be one, there was a custom that uh, if you had a feast like that and then you had guests over and you had a servant, the servant would wash everybody's feet. No mention of a servant in our story. So that job would then fall to the lowest uh, at the table, the, the lowest guest in the order of things. And that clearly hadn't happened either. Um, no ser- like I said, no servants were mentioned. None of the disciples either noticed the problem or took it the initiative to do it or humbled themselves to do it themselves. So Jesus takes it upon himself to do it. Uh, the other thing that may have been an impetus to it, <clears throat> we have a, a section in Luke's, which is chap- Luke chapter 22, verse 24. I think Nick has it. You can turn there if you like. won't be there for very long. But <clears throat> this is Luke's account of this supper. And it reads, so while they're sitting at the table, this is just after the Lord institutes the Lord's Supper or communion. It says, now there was a, also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to him, them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, which just means he's referring to people who enjoy titles, enjoy being in charge, enjoy the status of a position of authority. But not so among you. <clears throat> On the contrary, 
So it should be the opposite with you guys. He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So it could be that the disciples come in and they have this seating arrangement and probably some of them aren't all that happy about it. Um, they're very human, and I could very well see them all sitting there looking around, seeing who's ahead of them. Then they end up in this argument about who's the greatest, considering the pecking order that they found themselves in. Because uh, they've had this argument several times, at different times through the gospel, they're constantly arguing about who's the greatest. Um, but to see Jesus do it, um, probably was shocking to them. I'm sure it was a humbling experience for them. Uh, I know that if I see somebody doing something that I should have seen and never caught it, um, it's humbling and it's a bit convicting. But um, we'll, we'll read, keep reading here and see. Uh, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing now you do not understand, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. There's uh, some discussions you can, you can find about what he means there. I think there's a couple of things going on. Anytime you see a reference to Jesus cleansing somebody, certainly that's in reference to being cleansed from your sins unto salvation, I think. But he does say, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. So I think the idea is, yes, Jesus washes us and, and cleans, cleanses us unto salvation. But in this case, I think he's saying, Peter, you're already saved. You're already a follower of me. However, you do need to come to me. You need to have this ongoing fellowship and this ongoing relationship with me because people get dirty. We stumble into sin, and we have to go to the Lord. And it's not to be re-saved. I mean, once you're saved, you're saved. You're 100% righteous. You're, you're 100% justified. But we do stumble, and we do uh, sin. So that forgiveness that we're after is restoration of fellowship and restoration of our relationship. So those things don't come in between us and the Lord. And Peter, if you don't let me do this, uh, if, you don't, if you don't allow me to cleanse you, then you have no part with me. And in verse 15, jump down there, it says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Um, that example, most immediately, I think, to one another. These, these guys, rather than arguing about who's the greatest and who's better and who's going to have a seat of power position in, in the kingdom of God, should be humbling themselves. They should be serving one another. They should be loving each other. Uh, so amongst themselves, probably under the broader group of followers that Christ has, and certainly he's, he's going to call them and give them the great commission in just a few chapters and send them out into all the world and to preach the gospel. And our application for that would certainly be um, serving and loving one another in our home, amongst the body here, the greater body of, of believers, and anybody that the Lord has called us to, to preach to, to serve, to witness to. All right, <clears throat> so chapter 18 on is this discussion about Judas. And uh, I'm not going to read through all of that, but 
again, but I do have some observations. <clears throat> I don't know what to do with all of it, but some, some things here I think are pretty interesting. To consider Judas, so he's been with Jesus for three years or so now. He's seen all of the, he's, he's seen the walking on the water. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's witnessed all kinds of miracles, the love and the compassion of Jesus, the multitudes following him, all the things that he's done. He's seen all of the events that happened this, this last week. He's sitting in this room. He's sitting next to Jesus in a position of um, honor and the, the love that Jesus has for these people, the humility that he's showing. And people are getting washed, and Judas is one of them, but yet he remains unclean. He's, he's in a room in the presence of God himself, yet his, his heart is untouched and unmoved um, by him. The devil's present in a sense here, because immediately it says uh, Jesus is, the Satan enters him. So in the midst of that room and everything that's happening there, there's still evil lurking. Uh, there's evil just, un, just under the surface. And none of the disciples had any idea that Judas was the one. They were asking questions. Who is it? Who is it? Nobody, nobody knew. They had somebody who had already betrayed Jesus, yet nobody knew. Um, probably Judas, Judas figures out here that Jesus knows that he knows. And uh, that Satan could enter him like that in the presence of Jesus. And somehow that taking of the bread sort of seals the deal. And thinking about that scene, this, uh, Judas is right next to Jesus. And he's talking to him. So when, when Jesus, Jesus is talking to him, he says, what, what you do, do quickly. Is Jesus saying that to Judas? Is he saying that to Satan? And when he looks at him, I wonder, he's looking him in the eye, does he see something familiar looking back at him? Because Jesus created Lucifer, and he knows him from before he was cast out of heaven. And I wonder, as they're looking and they're talking at each other, is Jesus speaking to Satan himself, and he's looking into the eyes that have this familiar gaze looking back at him. And the, the imagery here, I think, that the Lord has for us, I think, is um, unmistakable. Jesus says of himself that he is the light of the world. And uh, in the first chapter of, of John, it also says, uh, speaking of Jesus, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So in the light of that room, the lamplight, and uh, the fact that he's sitting next to the capital L, light of the world, Jesus kind of turns his back on Jesus. He turns his back on that light. Satan has entered him. And they're up in, they're in the upper room, so he actually descends down the stairs out into the darkness. I think the imagery there um, is unmistakable. That Judas has turned his back on him, and he actually just kind of walks out in blackness of soul, if you will, having been possessed of the devil right out into the darkness of sin. So quite a contrast from the rest of the, the chapter that we're looking at. Uh, so I do want to dig into the actual foot washing piece here a little bit. But before we do that, if you guys would turn to Philippians with me, uh, chapter 2. I'm going to take a little bit closer look at who we're looking at. Who, who is this man that's washing these feet and doing these things? So you guys are in Philippians. I'm going to read something out of Colossians real quick just to save you. <laughs> save you. Yeah, messed you up. All right. <clears throat> it's up there. You can turn there if you want to. It's but we won't be there for very long. So we're doing this just to get a closer look at Jesus. I want to consider who it is that we're, we're talking about. So it says in verse 15 of Colossians 1, 
Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So, real quick. He's the image, uh, for by him all things were created there in heaven and that are on earth. So he's creator. He's God. And he is supreme over all creation because he is the creator. So he's the firstborn. Not that he was created, but he's the firstborn, meaning he has supremacy over all those things. He's God over earth and heaven, what, all things that are visible, invisible, um, all powers. Uh, he holds all things together. He's a firstborn from the dead, meaning he was the firstborn, um, first one to be resurrected. That in all things he may have the preeminence, and the, the Greek phrase there is uh, that he may be the one holding first place. So he's overall, he created all, he holds all things together, and he is the preeminence. And in, in, uh, earlier in John, he says, I am the resurrection. So Philippians, if you could, uh, chapter 2. All right, so that God that we just looked at briefly in Colossians, in verse 5 here, says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I won't spend a lot of time here, but a couple things I'd like to point out. One thing is this descending order of humility, I guess I would call it. So he's God, and he's in heaven, and he agrees to voluntarily he submits himself and he comes down he leaves heaven and he comes down here and he comes down in the form of a man and he comes to serve his father and he comes to serve man it says that he did not come to be served but to serve and then he becomes obedient to death and then he comes to be um, obedient to death on a cross so there's sort of this descending order of steps down that he traveled in fact I don't think that he could have traveled a further distance from the highest height of heaven down to the lowest possible position he could find himself in, nailed to a cross. So this descending order of humility. Uh, and the other, other thing we have here is this, the, this uh, verse that uh, he made himself of no reputation. Theologians have a field day with this section. We'll keep it super simple, but he's God. He remained God. He was 100% God in heaven. He was 100% God in uh, once he came and became a man, that never changed. Uh, he never divested himself and became less than God. But the sort of the emptying, this is the Greek word in, in that is the means to empty or to make empty. He never emptied himself in the sense that he no longer was God. Rather, um, he sort of laid aside uh, some aspects of his divine prerogative, we'll say. But that happened, that emptying happened in the taking up of something else. He didn't subtract something. It's more that he added something. Uh, so he's God, 
voluntarily comes, puts on flesh, and remains a man, and humbles himself to the lowest place he could possibly go. So, we can't grasp that uh, in, in all its fullness, but he partially, temporarily, and, and voluntarily laid aside some aspect of his deity, some aspect of his divine prerogative, temporarily in order to take up something else and add something and become a man. So, uh, with those couple of things in mind, we can just flip back to uh, John. I wanted to look at those things because um, just to consider the humility uh, of what he's doing here and the significance of what he's doing here. <clears throat> so, verse 15, he said, I have given you an example that I should do, you should do as I have done to you. So, he's given them an example, and we covered that briefly. The I'm doing this. I want you guys to see this, that if I'm willing to do this, you guys should be willing to do this for each other. Um, I also think he's given them an illustration of sorts. Um, what he did, the purpose of what he did was, was very obvious in what he said in verse 15. However, <clears throat> in addition to that, he's given them an illustration, I think. So from the moment he gets up from that seat, he washes their feet, and then he sits down again. It has a little bit of a parable-like quality to it. Uh, we mentioned uh, parables last week, that uh, parable is a story <clears throat> that comes alongside of a truth to illustrate it. And I, I think here he's sort of kind of pulling back a curtain a little bit, and he's quite literally acting out a parable. He's acting out something that he wants us to see. So we saw in Philippians, again, that Jesus partially, temporarily, voluntarily emptied himself, as a Greek word, or laid aside some aspects of his divine prerogative, we'll say. And here we see that illustrated. Uh, Jesus is in, excuse me, Jesus is the table. He gets up from the place that he was at, and he gets up in order to do something. Jesus was in heaven. He gets up from his position in heaven and chooses to leave heaven in order to come down. Jesus gets up from that table, and he lays aside his garment, and then he picks up a towel. Well, in coming from heaven, Jesus, as we read in Philippians, to the extent that we can understand it. He empties himself. He, he lays aside some aspect of his deity temporarily in the act of taking up and putting on flesh and assuming the role of a servant. Jesus pours out water into a bowl to wash them clean. Well, Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. And when he was done, uh, he put his garment back on and sat down back to the place that he began. When his Father's will was completed, Jesus ascended back to heaven, taking back up whatever it is that he had temporarily laid aside, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father in heaven, right back to the place that he began. Uh, interestingly, I think, in, in the narrative, it says he gets up, he takes his garment off, and he puts his towel on. When he's done, it reads, uh, so we need to wash their feet, taking his garments, and sat down again. Well, the order isn't reversed. Um, it seems reasonable to assume that he would have taken the towel off because it was dirty, it was wet. But the point is, the, the text doesn't specifically say that he did. Um, so when Jesus became a man, it was a one-way trip. It was a, something that he put on that he was never going to take off again. He was, became man. He was 100% God, 100% man, and he remained man. The text would indicate that when he was done 
washing feet. He put his garment back on. But the towel in the, in the parable, if you will, represents his flesh. He didn't take that back off. In fact, the word uh, girded means to uh, bind or gird all around. I think when he put the towel on, he put his garment back on over it because he remained a man once he became a man. Which I think is pretty cool to, to see in the story. And I think ultimately what the Lord would have us see today um, and to consider as we read down through that and think about who he is and where he came from and how far he came down what he was willing to do and sacrifice. He was doing things here to give them examples. He's doing things here to give us examples. He's about to go to the cross. And everything he did, he did because he loved us. And everything he did, he did because he humbled himself and voluntarily chose to come. I don't think, as I said before, I think, I don't think he could have traversed a greater distance than he did. From the highest height of heaven, being God, being creator, being Lord of all, but he, he leaves that, he comes down, becomes a man, and lives this life serving people, loving people, giving people glimpses of the kingdom for the last three years. He's got a group of men here that love him, uh, one that betrays him, one that saw everything that uh, everybody else saw, but yet remained unchanged. Um, he offers us himself. It's not a religious formula or just some plan on how to get to heaven, but... He offered himself, and I, and I wonder as I read, you know, how much more could he have done? How, how much lower could he have gone? Uh, how much more could he have offered us? As he's, he's about winning. He wants to win our hearts. He wants us to choose him. I guess C.S. Lewis has said that God cannot ravish. He can only woo. His desire in his heart is to offer himself and put himself on display and cause us to love him, to draw us to him because he loves us. I mean, we see over and over and over and over in the Gospels of, of his love and his mercy and his kindness and his forgiveness. He raised the dead. He healed broken hearts. He called people. He drew people. Um, and who does that? What, what kind of king does that? Uh, there's a paragraph I'm going to read to you from a commentary that I thought was really good. I probably could have just read the text and read this and been done in five minutes because I think it's that good. But I'm going to read it to you. It's actually in the questions too because I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it says, <clears throat> Among men, the slave washes his master, but with God it is not so. So then the inversion of all human social relations forced on John's mind the deep truth that we are here face to face with the divine, with the divine human. John here strains his words to give some conception of what passed in his own mind when he saw our Lord's face and witnessed this great revelation of his character. Though this evangelist did not record the transfiguration, meaning the, the Mount of Transfiguration, there were moments in Christ's history which produced a still profounder impression upon him and in which he veritably saw the glory of his divine personality, origin, and destiny was blended with the deepest descent of the Lord's entire humanity to the level of weakness, pollution, and sin. The greatest manifestation of God was in the revelation of the exceeding limits, the infinite death which love could compass. We may see a little farther on 
What were the special steps our Lord took to give this sense of love to the uttermost? And on the part of him to whom all the universe had been entrusted, who had come from and was going back to the Father. Um, I thought that summed up a lot of what I was trying to get to and, and trying to see. And the, the, his humility, his willingness to serve, um, entering in, being coming a curse for us, having our sins upon him, and just seeing him play this part and, and act that out and demonstrate to us how much he loves us. So, <clears throat> end with just one verse. Right back to where we started. This is uh, verse 1. And now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that, a lot quicker than I thought, is our study today. So, if you guys would pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, again, thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, I just pray that uh, what you have for us, Lord, would um, be made known, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we go, that the things in there that were of you, that were your heart for us to hear today, Lord, would you work those in us, help us to take those things with us as we go, and uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you and ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.